I want to state clearly and for the record that I never wanted to preach this sermon. You'd be surprised how many sermons you feel that way about, but this one is specific, and so for it I need to confess aloud my feelings about Mark 8, 22 through 26. I'll get into that for a moment, but first, let me say that I love the Gospel of Mark. I love healing stories. I love Jesus. Uh, there's just one little element of this story that makes my skin crawl. I hate spit. <laughs> I'm aware that for me to communicate to you that to you is a very vulnerable act. I I've hidden my phobia from my little brother his entire life. I hid this all the years that I was in youth ministry from my teenagers, especially from the boys. And I have so, so far successfully hidden it from my children who do not listen to the podcast of this chapel, so that's a good thing. <laughs> I've hidden it the way that Superman hides his weakness to kryptonite, knowing that if revealed, it would most certainly be used against him. Uh, this is not a mild dislike. Somewhere long ago in microbiology class, a, a simple exercise with a slide and some dye and a microscope and an innocent look as at what was in our mouths, uh, went horribly wrong, and a phobia was born. Um, I hate it so much, I normally won't even say the word out loud, but when I used my thesaurus app to look up alternative words to use with you this morning, I almost fainted in a swoon of disgust that I felt at the alternatives. So, spit it is. So when I felt very clearly led by the Holy Spirit to this passage to preach to you today on the first chapel of a bright, new, undefiled semester, I begged Jesus to let me out of it. I asked this in the same way that those who remember Indiana Jones will remember that he asked, why did it have to be snakes? But sometimes the Lord gives us a thorn in the flesh, and so... This morning, we will approach this particular story of the blind man in Mark. First, some context. Wouldn't be Asbury if you didn't get some context. Jesus and the disciples are fresh off the boat from the feeding of 4,000 people with only seven loaves of bread on the other side of Galilee. It was a miracle that clearly amazed many citizens. It even got the attention of the Pharisees who approached afterwards and asked Jesus if he would do a little sign for them as well, to which just Jesus responded, well, no. Afterwards, they get in a boat and they cross Galilee, and on the journey, the disciples realize they forgot to bring bread. They only have one loaf. And Jesus mentions the Pharisees and warns them to beware the yeast of the Pharisees, to which the disciples respond by whispering to one another, he's mad at us because we forgot to bring any bread. Picture Jesus shaking his head, asking them if they've been paying attention at all. Do you remember when I fed the 5,000 people with five loaves? How many baskets were left over at the end? Twelve baskets. And do you remember, really just now, when I fed 4,000 people with seven loaves and how many baskets were left over? Seven baskets. And you think that I'm upset that you only brought one loaf on the boat today. Do you still not get it? And, and that, well, that's all the time that I can buy with context. So that brings me <laughs> to the dreaded passage of the day. 
Next, they enter the village of Bethsaida, and some people bring a blind man to Jesus, and they beg Jesus to touch him. Clearly, Jesus' reputation as a healer has preceded him. They've heard that he heals with just a touch. Won't he use that same method, they ask, his miraculous touch to heal this man? And Jesus pulls the man aside from these crowds, all the way out of the village, actually. And instead of simply touching him, he, well, he goes for a different method. Jesus expectorates. And no, this isn't that other spit passage with Jesus spitting on the dirt and making mud. In this passage, well, I'll just quote Mark. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? Really, Jesus? I mean, you've used so many other lovely methods of healing for other people, touching them with your hands, commanding them to get up and walk with your words. There was that one cool time with just the hem of your garment. Why not try that again? Did you have to spit in the guy's face? And then there's another strange matter about this healing. Uh, This is the only place in Scripture where it takes Jesus two tries to get it right. Jesus finishes his unusual healing method, touches the man's eyes, and then asks, do you see anything? And and the man responds that he can see a little, but when he looks around, he, he sees people, but they look like trees walking around. My husband, who's worn glasses since he was in the second grade, told me he understands exactly what this guy is talking about. Take away his glasses and his contacts, and we're all just walking trees to him. And the thing that impresses me, though, when I stop to think about this story, really for the first time fully since I've been avoiding reading it for years, the thing that impresses me is the man's willingness to admit that everything is not okay yet. It reminds me that healing lies in admitting that you need help, admitting that you are not, in fact, okay. The man might have answered differently. I mean, maybe to protect Jesus' feelings. Do you see anything? I'm, you know, sure, it's, it's pretty good, better than it was. Thank you, Jesus. I appreciate all your help. He, he might have answered differently to cover up his own feelings of inadequacy about why he didn't get healed all at once, like the others. Do you see anything? You know, I'm sure I see as well as I deserve. It's better than being blind, so let's just call it good. But the man did not say, yeah, I can see fine, it's good enough. He told the truth. I see people, but they look pretty strange. It's not quite what I expected. They look like trees walking around. And then, then he just shut up and let Jesus figure out what to do next. Healing lies in admitting that you need help, admitting that you're not okay, being honest with Jesus, and letting Jesus figure out what to do next. And Jesus responds. He responds by touching him again. And this time, the man can see clearly. 
So not only did he get a sort of unusual method of healing, in his case, the cure comes slowly. And the healing work happens in stages. God's work can be slow and imperceptible sometimes. Has anyone noticed that yet? And when that's the case, Jesus sometimes has to repeat his process more than once for the healing of an individual to be complete. Or, as they might say in Texas, some nails need more than one hit. All right, let's go back again and talk about the disciples, shall we? That ragtag group of followers that we love to mock, maybe not out loud, but as we read the Gospels, we often feel superior to them as we notice how we are beginning to understand Jesus, but they're just not getting it. Remember where they've just come from, a scene where Jesus fed 4,000 people with only seven loaves of bread, seven? And there were seven full baskets of leftovers, and then they get right in the boat and start fretting over not having enough bread with them? They've forgotten to pack food, and they think that maybe Jesus' reference to yeast is some passive-aggressive shout-out to them and their inadequacies. And Jesus, again, gently reminds them about his acts of provision and all the leftovers. And then here are Jesus' questions to them, again, quoting from Mark. Do you still see and not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes that fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Do you hear all of that language about vision and blindness and eyes just before we meet the man with the fuzzy vision? And then let's talk about what happens right after we meet this twice-touched man. Immediately, they moved to Caesarea Philippi where Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter has a moment of clear vision where he proclaims, you are the Messiah. Yay, Peter. (laughs) I mean, way to go, way to see Jesus for who he truly is, but don't get too excited because immediately after is where Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan, to Peter for rebuking Jesus. I mean, who rebukes Jesus? for saying that his path will include his suffering and his death. So much for clear vision. Too bad, Peter. Blind again. These stories of the disciples' blindness and the story of the man who needs a second touch are so interwoven that in the InterVarsity Press cultural commentary on the New Testament, Craig Keener labels that central story of the two-touch healing of the man, blindness half-cured. And the problematic stories of the disciples just before and after it, he calls disciples still blind and disciples half see. Mark strings these stories together like pearls in a way that sheds light on the blind man's healing and light on our view of the half-blind disciples who certainly could use another touch from Jesus. So wait a minute. What, What we're saying is that someone could follow Jesus literally walk beside him and still be half blind to who he is and what he's come to do? That when little children try to come to him, they turn them away? 
that when hungry crowds gather, they insist on sending them home, that when Jesus explains that his path to rule is through suffering and death, they actually have the nerve to rebuke him and tell him not to talk crazy like that. That actual disciples of Jesus could be so blind that they would insist that the poor and the marginalized and the vulnerable and the outsiders are merely a nuisance. But that if Jesus would just stop all this talk about sacrifice and meekness and humility, that we might get somewhere with the people who really matter. That those who proclaim themselves followers of Jesus, that's us, folks who know the way, the truth, and the life are still sometimes the ones who are ourselves most lost on the way, confused about the truth, and half dead to the life that Jesus has to offer. Some nails need more than one hit. I'm convinced when I read this story that what the man sees in his half-blind and half-sighted state is not at all a coincidence. That when he saw people walking around, but he couldn't quite see those people clearly, he was, in fact, pointing out for us a place of diagnosis, that that it's often in our relating to people and seeing Jesus for who he really is and seeing people and the image of God in them for who they really are, that it's in seeing or rather not seeing those things that our blindness shows up more than anything else. Or to put it another way, Our darkness is most revealed in how we see and treat the people around us. I mean, put me in a monastic cell, and I can imagine myself to be holy. But immerse me in community and relationships, and my sin will rear its ugly head before breakfast is even over. But the good news is that the sickness is also the cure. That being in relationship, being in community, is the best treatment for those of us who are still a little fuzzy on the way that we see and treat other people. Henry Cloud, who's the author of the book, How People Grow, What the Bible Reveals About Personal Growth, tells about a time when he hit rock bottom in his life and how God brought him back. He was in college uh, where he was on a golf scholarship, but he injured his hand, which meant that it was painful to play and he wasn't playing well. And he finally decided to give up golf, but he discovered that he had built his entire identity around his performance. Anybody else have that problem? And that now he found himself without that identity, depressed and aimless and wondering who he was and what he should do with his life. He sank deeper and deeper into depression when finally he met a Christian couple who took him in and discipled him. Uh, The husband was actually a seminary student, when this story happened. And besides walking with him through this, they encouraged Henry to join a small group where he learned that up to that point in life, he had been avoiding getting close to other people and letting them be close to him. He realized that most of his life had been based on performance and accomplishment and not intimacy with God and others. And and this new community loved him, but they also challenged him. They confronted him. They forgave him, they loved him, and they walked with him as he figured out who God was and who he was and how these two things were connected. 
And this, this is the part of this book, How People Grow, that I've loved so much that I've probably quoted it to half the people who've come to me as a pastor or a friend, wondering why they didn't get the kind of healing or change or growth they were seeking in their lives. His words say it best, and so I'll read them to you here. One day, he says, one day sometime later, and after going into counseling myself, I realized my depression and my feelings of emptiness were gone. I actually felt good about life and about me. And as I examined my feelings, I discovered I was both happy and disappointed. God had changed my life. My life had taken a 180 degree turn, but God had not healed me when I sought healing. He had not supernaturally zapped me. God's supernatural zapping seemed like plan A to me. And as I talked about this disappointment, people told me the same thing over and over again. Well, sometimes God uses people too. I hated hearing that phrase. I had wanted God to touch my depression instantaneously and healed me, and instead, he used people to help me. I came to call this God's plan B. I thought that when God supernaturally intervened and healed, it was plan A, and that was the true spiritual healing. But when God used people to heal, it was inferior, although effective, a plan B. I accepted that I was one of those people who got plan B, and so there I was, grateful but somewhat disappointed at my grade B healing. It was good but it felt a little more like sitting in the bleachers than in the box seats. And then one day I made a discovery in scripture that changed my way of viewing plan B forever. Ephesians 4.16 says, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I couldn't believe it. I read the verse again. Not only was it true that God uses people too, this was not plan B. This was not second rate at all. In fact, people helping people was plan A. The Bible said so. Not only that, but it was just not people doing it. It was God himself. God was working directly through people when they were helping me. So plan B was the original plan A after all. Community, relationships, people with the image of God in them is plan A. I believe it's our dysfunction in relationships that both reveals our blindness and that it's our participation in those relationships that is often God's second touch to heal them. And you and I, friends, are people of the second touch. This is why you're here. In this seminary, in these classes, in this chapel, over and over again, because part of getting ready for ministry is God clearing your fuzzy vision, and Jesus is after a second touch. Really, God? Is this really the way you want to heal to transform me? I asked to be zapped. I mean, I asked you to just fix me in a moment, and I got this, life and community. Why do you use such unusual methods that are not my plan? 
don't throw me in a pit of snakes, don't make me preach about spit, and don't make me vulnerable, accountable, transformed, and changed by a second touch again in the midst of my community. Isn't there an easier way? But if it's your plan A, I guess I'll take it. In your ministries, you're going to find people who believe that their conversion, their baptism, their first encounter with Jesus was all they needed. They got saved once upon a time, or maybe not. And now they've been sitting in the same pews for decades, listening to sermon after sermon by preacher after preacher, and some of those people are as mean as snakes. And you are going to think often that they are nails that deserve to be hit again and again. But you, you're going to tell them. You're going to tell them about John and Charles and the Holy Club at Oxford. You're going to explain that it was a man who had already been a preacher and a missionary who still needed his heart strangely warmed. You're going to tell them about the second touch of Jesus, who is eager to help when we admit that we are not whole yet, and when we just trust him to do what's next. And mostly, you are going to love them with all the plan A that you can muster and watch their eyes gradually open to the love of God through you and God's people in community. Charles Walsh writes these sobering words. I suspect that Satan has called off his attempt to convert people to agnosticism. After all, if a person travels far enough away from Christianity, he or she is always in danger of seeing it in perspective and deciding that it is true. It is much safer, from Satan's point of view, to vaccinate a person with a mild case of Christianity so as to protect them from the real disease. Wesleyans are people of the second touch. We will not be satisfied with a mild case of Christianity. And we know that Jesus is in the business of opening eyes, even of those who have already been on the road with him, witnessing miracles, listening to sermons, but whose vision is still pretty fuzzy. That he's in the business of offering a second touch to those who call themselves disciples, who, who sit in pews, who stand in pulpits, to those who come to seminary, and that if we're willing to ask, to admit that we don't quite see clearly yet that he will again offer us his eye-opening, ongoing grace. Amen. I'm going to tell you oh, a few words about what we're going to do next in response to God's word. Um, I am grateful for the ritual of baptism and that while we're baptized only once, that the act of giving ourselves to Jesus as we are and asking for his cleansing grace is actually a repeatable act. It's something that we do again and again. And so um, you'll find bowls of water around the chapel today. There's one here at the front, and some of you will want to come all the way up. And there's two at the center of the chapel. And as we take the next few minutes to pray and to listen, I want to invite you out of your seat. 
either to come to one of those bowls and, and touch the water, maybe to remember your baptism and to remember God's ongoing eye-opening grace to touch the water and ask for a second touch. You can do that simply by touching the water or marking the sign of a cross on your head or your hands. Um, I want to invite you to do this during this time in order to consecrate yourself again and this new semester and this community that is God's plan A for us. Uh, You can do that by coming and kneeling at this altar. We'll take a little time for that. You can do that by praying at your seats. And I'll begin our prayer now together. Let's pray. God, once again, we find ourselves with fuzzy vision, needing a second touch from you. So Lord, we pray this morning on this first chapel of a new semester, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on those gathered here, on this gift of water, and by it, remind us again of the grace declared to us in baptism. And then today, Lord, touch us again and open our eyes. Amen. This water, this place of prayer is open to you. Will you come?